Before uh, Tim comes to speak to us this morning, we are going to be reading from the book of Luke. So if you do have your Bibles with you uh, and would like to turn to Luke chapter 22, and we're going to read verses 39 through to 54, but it will also come up on the screen. And it says, <laughs> Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping? He asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. While he was still speaking, a crowd came up, and the man who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He approached Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus asked him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his right ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. And he touched the man's ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and the elders who had come for him, Am I leading a rebellion that you have come with swords and clubs? Every day I was with you in the temple courts and you did not lay a hand on me. But this is your hour when darkness reigns. Then seizing him, they led him away and took him into the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. Let's just pray for Tim before he comes up. Father God, thank you so much for Tim, uh, along with Andy and Judy and the leadership that they bring to Riverside across all its many sites. And we pray now that as Tim comes and shares his wisdom with us, that he would be your mouthpiece into each of our lives, that you would speak through him and that we would leave this place changed for better from knowing you even more. Amen. Good morning. Great to see you again. Uh, welcome again. If you're here for the first time, particularly, it's a joy to have you with us. We're one church meeting in different places uh, in Birmingham right now, and uh, it's great to have you with us. Eleanor Rigby died in the church and was buried along with her name. Nobody came. Father Mackenzie wiping the dirt from his hands as he walks from the grave. No one was saved. All the lonely people, where do they all come from? All the lonely people, where do they all belong? Ah, look at all the lonely people. So said the Beatles in their famous 1966 hit, Eleanor Rigby. It was a shocking song then, I hear. And the story that it talked about 50 years ago is arguably even more relevant today. It's a story of an unknown woman, Eleanor, and her loneliness and the loneliness she sees around her as people come past her into church and the lives that they live. 
We live in a society in which there are growing concerns about the levels of loneliness and isolation in our society. With more and more people living alone, greater busyness in our lives, less time for friendships, more demands from work, greater tension in our relationships, it seems that the burden of loneliness is growing and growing and growing. Indeed, a BBC documentary last year defined our age as the age of loneliness. And the research backs this up. For older people, research suggests that loneliness is twice as bad for older people's health as obesity and almost as great a cause of death as poverty. Two in every five people, uh, two in every five older people, say that television is their main company in life. Loneliness increases the risk of early death by 26%, apparently. For younger people, the research is also very clear. In general, the younger you are, the more likely you are to feel lonely often. The more likely you are to have felt depressed because you felt alone. Over half of young people say that. And more people in the 18 to 30s age bracket report worrying about feeling lonely. And for all of us... Less than a quarter of us never feel lonely, apparently. And a third of us have been depressed because of feeling lonely. In fact, I don't know if you saw in one of them papers this week. I was just pointed out beforehand by John. Research this week was released. The loneliest people in our society, the peak age of loneliness, according to research, is for 35-year-old men, apparently. In fact, in a 2014 survey from the National Office of Statistics revealed that Britain as a country is the loneliness capital of Europe. We are less likely to know our neighbours, less likely to have strong friendships than anyone else in Europe, and we have less people to turn to in a crisis than our European neighbours. Perhaps that's why we've chosen to go alone. Who knows? You can come and disagree afterwards if you want. Now, it's important to define what we're talking about here. One recent survey called The Lonely Society by the Mental Health Foundation helpfully defined what we mean by loneliness. They defined it as this. Loneliness, then, is not being alone, but an experience of isolation. This is important, because I would guess that in this room right now, if we were brave enough to be able to admit it, and if I was cheeky enough to ask, the number of people who would admit to feeling lonely, if we were to put our hands up, please don't, I guess we would be surprised as we look around the room who would admit to that. We may be single and wish we weren't. We may be married and feel yet more alone than other people would ever imagine. We may feel isolated and alone in our jobs where no one understands the complexity or the disillusionment we face. We may be experiencing difficulties in our life where we feel so alone even though we're surrounded by people. Chances are, whether or not we experience it right now, many of us know the pain and the destruction of being isolated or feeling lonely. Or as Mother Teresa put it, the most terrible poverty is loneliness, the feeling of being unloved. Loneliness, if we're brave enough to admit it, hurts deeply. 
Well, today we continue this series called When the End is the Beginning, where we're looking at the end of the book of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts. Two books written by the same person, Luke, all about the end days of Jesus' life, where he dies and then comes back to life, and then the birth of the church, the beginning of something new. In the reality that the end of things is often not just an ending, it is a beginning. And today we're thinking of the moment running up to his death where he was alone, where Jesus was completely alone, it seems. And the reason we're zooming in on this is so key. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we read these words about Jesus. This high priest, talking about Jesus of ours, understands our weaknesses. For he faced all of the same tests that we do, yet he did not sin. And unlike any other worldview, unlike any other religious system, at the very heart of the Christian message is not that God is some distant God, some unmoved mover. Or that Christianity is about some set of teaching or some set of doctrine to improve your life or to be a better person. No, at the heart of the Christian message is the reality that God has come close. That he knows, that he experiences, that he understands what you and I go through. Including our desperate isolation and loneliness. That he stepped into our broken and frail humanity and experiences the same loss and isolation that we do. And therefore, in that same breath, we realize that we never really are alone. And my hope for us this morning, as we briefly look at five ways that Jesus experienced loneliness and isolation... And therefore, we realize that those five ways are ways that we are never really alone. My hope and prayer for all of us, and particularly for you, if right now the loneliness is so painful, that therefore, even this morning, you might have your eyes lifted and a sense of unity with Jesus, and hope begins to stir that there is hope. So, five ways that we're never really alone, and this is the first thing. Jesus' experience shows us that we are never alone in struggling in prayer. My experience, and maybe yours, is that there can be few things more isolating than being in a room in which people experience answers to prayer and we don't. I remember being in a room a few years back when a tragedy had just happened. And in this room, it was an opportunity for people to tell what God had been doing in their lives. And somebody was sharing about their experience in the previous week, how they had had to catch a flight to get somewhere for an appointment. And the weather was looking bad, and so they were desperate because they needed to get to this appointment. They were worried the flight was going to be delayed or cancelled. So they prayed, and they prayed that they would be able to get their appointment, to their appointment on time. And this person was wonderfully sharing about how their prayer had been answered and the fog had been lifted and they'd been able to get to their appointment. Praise God, hallelujah. And there I was in this room feeling this disorientating reality of combining an apparently fairly trivial answer to prayer and the deep tragedy that had just happened. 
And it was such a lonely, isolating experience. And my guess is there are people here that know this. You have prayed for things for decades. And the tears have flowed. And now you're even out of tears because you can't do it anymore. Well, listen to these amazing words. Verse 39 of the passage we read in Luke 22. Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. His disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you won't fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond them, knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yeah, not my will, but yours be done. Here, there is a profound beauty that Jesus doesn't get what he prays for. Father, take this cup from me. I don't want to go through what I'm about to go through. Please, Father. And how wonderful it is to hear Jesus praying those words. And not just that, verse 44. Being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly. That word in the original is literally being in agony. This is not just a trite prayer. Please, Lord, lift it away. He is agony, agonizing about this prayer. Father, please. Please. And of course that shows us, doesn't it, that the reality of prayer is far more than getting what we want. It was great to join together as one church uh, a week or so ago in our half night of prayer at Riverside House where we passionately for a whole four hours just poured out our hearts to God. How good that is to do together. And here we realize that prayer is not about getting our rights from God. Prayer is about a relationship with God. And here we have Jesus praying, Father, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours. That's prayer, isn't it? It's not getting what we want. And therefore, we realize we're never alone for you that have struggled in prayer, for those things that burden you, those things that just make you feel so isolating. Jesus knows. He knows what it is to pray and not get what you pray for. It's the first thing, way we're never alone. The second thing is this. Jesus' experience shows us that we're never alone in suffering alone. I wonder if the name Yvette Vickers means anything to you. Uh, She's a famous actress in the 50s, starring in the B-movie classic, Attack of the 50-Foot Woman. I won't ask her who's seen it. I haven't. I have no idea. Apparently, it's a B-movie classic. Well, in 2011, a woman named Susan Savage, who was a neighbor to Yvette Vickers, realized that the letters in the actress's mailbox were beginning to yellow with age. And the cobwebs were building up in her doorway. And so she went round, went into the house, and Yvette Vickers had been dead over a year. In the letterbox was fan mail from all around the world. She was adored by millions and yet known and loved by none, it seems. Nobody really cared that she hadn't been seen for over a year. Suffering alone. 
And it's a very painful experience, isn't it, when we go through stuff in life and we feel that we're suffering alone. Nobody else is going through it. And so no matter how caring people, or there may be people around us supporting us, but we are the one that's going through it. And so no matter how caring people are, it feels so lonely. And in the middle of the night, as we are in the dark, crying out to God, we feel so alone. Look at verse 44. Being in anguish, Jesus prayed more earnestly and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to his disciples, he found them asleep. Jesus knew what it was to suffer and to suffer alone. Agonizing and yet those people to support him were asleep. In that moment, we realize that in our agony, our suffering, that middle-of-the-night experience where we feel alone, well, we realize that we're never really alone. And as we cast our mind forwards beyond this experience of Jesus to that moment where on the cross he cries out, Father, why have you forsaken me? We realize we're never really alone. So Jesus knows. He knows what it is to experience prayer that doesn't get what we want. He knows what it is to experience suffering on our own, and therefore we're never alone. And the third is this. Jesus' experience shows us that we're never alone in not being understood. It can be a really isolating experience, can't it? When we understand something and nobody else around gets it, It might be in a work context, and we're trying to bring about a change, and everybody else is against us. They just don't get it. Or or we're trying to influence something in our relationships for good, and yet all it seems to do when we talk about it is create hassle and flack, and so therefore we almost don't want to say it because we just feel so alone, and nobody else gets it. We feel misunderstood. And we try to suggest a different course of action for good, and yet we're criticized, and we feel so alone. Well, look at verse 49. Judas and everybody turn up to arrest Jesus. Verse 49, when Jesus' followers saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, should we strike with our swords? Let's get them, boys. One of them struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. But Jesus answered, no more of this. Jesus is the only one that gets what's happening. His disciples think he should be doing a revolution. And yet Jesus' revolution is a very different way, one of peace and love and hope. Nobody else understands. He's alone here. Even those defending him don't get it and try to force his hand in a different direction. Friends, If you're not understood, Jesus knows. Jesus has experienced that. Jesus has been through that. And right now, Jesus knows what you are going through. So that's the third way. We're never alone in struggling with prayer. We're never alone in suffering alone. We're never alone in not being understood. The fourth way is this. Jesus' experience show us we're never alone in being rejected by those closest to us. I would guess that in the room right now, some of us know this experience, perhaps the greatest loneliness. 
of being rejected, isolated, abandoned by those closest to us. Those that we have allowed in to our inner life. Those who know what we really are, not just our public face. Those who have gone into our hearts. And now, decades later, the wounds are still real. I would guess there are many in this room that know that pain and how that sense of loneliness cuts so much deeper. Well, listen to these words. Verse 54. Then seizing Jesus, they led him away and took him to the house of the high priest. Peter followed at a distance. When some there had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, sat down together, Peter sat down with them. A servant girl saw him seated there in the firelight. She looked closely at him and said, This man was with him. But Peter denied it. Woman, I don't know him, he said. A little later, someone else saw him and said, You're also one of them. Man, I'm not, Peter replied. And about an hour later, another asserted, Certainly this fellow was him for, with him, for he's a Galilean. Peter replied, Man, I don't know what you're talking about. And just as he was speaking, the cock crowed. Here is Jesus with the one that said, I'm with you all the way, Jesus. Even if everyone else lets you down, I'm there. The one who's been with him for these last few years. The inner core. Peter, the one that was dependable, reliable. The one that was going to stick with Jesus. The closest of the close. And yet here, he even denies knowing him. And I would guess some of us know that experience. It may not be denying knowing us, but it may be those deep wounds that cut very, very deep. Like hearing an ambulance in an accident in the distance, and then we realize the ambulance is going somewhere else. We feel so alone. And yet in that breath, as we see Jesus looking at Peter, we realize that Jesus knows exactly what you're going through right now. He knows those wounds. He's experienced it. Even to the point, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we're never really alone in being rejected by those closest to us. And fifthly and finally then, Yes, Jesus knows, shows us that we're never alone in struggling with prayer. Yes, Jesus shows us that we're never alone in suffering alone. Yes, Jesus shows us that we're never alone if we're misunderstood. Yes, Jesus shows us that we're never alone in being rejected by those closest to us. Jesus' experience shows us that we're never really alone in being publicly shamed. And this is a very specific one, I think, in our generation and our age. In an age of social media, where it seems that the way to win an argument is to shame the other person so that everyone thinks bad of them so that you win. And in a context at work, where to get promotion, you need to push other people down to show that you're the boss. It's all about publicly shaming other people. And in a world in which we, we love the juicy gossip of what's happening with Prince Harry or what's happening with X, Y, and Z. And we love it, particularly in this country where the great seem to stumble. Public shame. 
I remember for me a few years ago, I was in a job post-university. It was quite a few years ago now. <laughs> and I was in this job which involved me traveling between two main offices. The company I was working for had an office in Gloucester and an office in Uxbridge on the ed edge of London. So I was traveling every week, kind of back and forth, but it was the age of um, video conferencing. I don't know if anyone remembers that, where it was kind of pre-Skype and pre-FaceTime and all that, where you'd be in a meeting with your team and you'd be video conferencing and there was a sort of three-second delay. And so you'd have a conversation and then three seconds later somebody would reply. Anyone remember those sort of things? Well, I was given this job to do as part of my work and to be honest, I didn't know how to do it. But because of pride, I asked for help, and people gave me help, but I still didn't really get what I was supposed to be doing, and I couldn't do it. And so the weeks went by, and I remember the, my boss every meeting, how's it going with that particular thing? And you'd sort of put them off a little bit. I'm getting there, working hard, we'll get there. And then the next week, they'd ask the same question. you say, oh, I'm just waiting to hear back from somebody. And then the next week, they'd ask the question again, well, this person still hasn't got back to me, and you know, trying to defer the blame. Until one time, months later, my boss asked me clearly, coldly, Tim, why haven't you done this? It's been months. And there began one of the most isolating and surreal experiences where I burst into tears on a video conference. <laughs> Which is a strange thing, because you burst into tears, and normally in life, when you burst into tears, people respond immediately. But in that, you burst into tears, and then there's silence for three seconds until then suddenly people respond from across the room, from across the country, as it were. And I felt so ashamed because I'd never properly admitted that I just didn't know what on earth I was doing. Embarrassed, ashamed, alone. And I would guess that right now there are some people who know that experience in your job, where you've been publicly shamed. Some of us know that experience because society has told us that we're wrong. Or some of us, if we're honest, are terrified at the moment that we will be found out. Jesus knows what it's like to be publicly shamed. Verse 63 the men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Here he is, being abandoned by those closest to him. In prayer and literally physically, they don't even want to know him. And now he's hauled out publicly and insulted, and beaten, and shamed, and stripped. Some of us need to know that Jesus understands that isolation of being publicly shamed. And of course, that shows us in that moment that we are never really alone. As the one who hung on a cross before all humanity to see, we see that we're never really alone. Friends, whatever you're going through, whatever your experience, it may be very acute, it may be very real. It is real. And yet, and yet, we have a high priest. We have one who knows our weaknesses. And so therefore, we're never really alone.